You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi, and welcome to the History Respawn podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be talking about some of the history games we've been playing recently, as well as touching on recent news related to history games, including the Red Dead Redemption 2 trailer and the Battlefield 5 beta. And joining me on today's episode, now that he's finished abandoning me for another podcast, <laughs> Dr. John Harney. John, what do you have to say for yourself? Bob, all I can do is beg your forgiveness. History Respond is the only podcast for me, I promise. Okay, well, I'm going to I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, you know, I thought we had a special relationship particularly after we recorded a Kenny Loggins discography episode. You know, for people who don't know about that amazing Kenny Loggins episode, one of these days we must do a, a retrospective. We'll just post it to the History Respond That's exactly website. what we should do. Uh, that was an know. amazing podcast episode. <laughs> You've no idea, listeners, you've no idea. No, you should have been there. Um so, uh, John, I thought we would talk a little bit about the history games we've been playing, and I got a chance to finally play Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour Mode last week uh, after I spent a summer babysitting and moving home. So uh, I wanted to know, did you ever get a chance to play Assassin's Creed Origins? Uh, and if you did, did you ever touch Discovery Tour? I have not played Origins, unfortunately. And Discovery Tour, I can't wait to hear what you think about it because I've seen like video stuff and I've read a lot about it. I'm definitely in, intrigued by it. And Origins as a whole is interesting. So the short answer is no. <laughs> um, but with the new Assassin's Creed coming out, um, I'm kind of getting back into all things Assassin's Creed. So I, I really want to hear about Discovery Tour because I'm super interested by that. Uh, so briefly, I would say I like it. Okay. Uh, but I'm not sure if it's really applicable to learning environments. Okay. Uh, which seems like it's kind of the point mm. of the whole thing. I don't know. Uh, but essentially, Discovery Tour is a series of short audio tours that combine the game's visuals with archival images. Uh, so, for instance, the first tour that you get is of the, uh, I think it's the city walls of Alexandria. And so what they'll do is they have this narrator come on, uh, give you, uh, a short description uh, of the walls of Alexandria, and then also kind of match that up with uh, an archival image, like an actual uh, piece of the wall that's in a museum or an actual artist sketch huh. uh, of the same thing. And they do that over and over again for whatever topic you're interested in. So it could be, uh, again, there's Alexandria, there's a tour about the pyramids, there's a tour about the tombs inside the pyramids. Uh, there is a tour for each of the major cities, uh, you know, especially Memphis and Alexandria. Uh, there is uh, tours for different individuals and what their lives were like. There are tours for daily life uh, within ancient Egypt. So it's pretty, pretty comprehensive, especially given the kind of range of uh, you know, areas and people that you run into in the game. Most of those areas uh, each have their own uh, little short tour. And these tours... Uh, they're really handy. They they tell you up front how long they're going to take. And I'd say most of them are between 5 and 12 minutes, uh, give or take. 
Um, and what's cool is that during the tour, if you're looking at an object in the game, it gives you the ability to control the camera angle. So you can kind of look at the object or look at the archival image, whichever way you want to. Uh, and then many of these tours, they also include behind the scenes notes from the production crew. Uh, and these notes include uh, the ways in which the production crew researched a topic and then also how they changed that history, that research in order to fit the game. Uh, so for instance, they have the tour of the Sphinx and for the tour of the Sphinx, there's a kind of uh, a short section of the tour in which the production team talks about uh, the ways in which they adapted the color, the original color of the Sphinx to this era of history for the game, when in fact that color wasn't really present uh, during uh, this era, during mm. the Ptolemaic period. Uh, so the developers are really keen to you know give you kind of uh, a broad overview of the subjects. And they're also really keen to tell you when they're kind of going out on a ledge uh, either with the history or what's in the game. Uh, so for instance, you know, like with the Sphinx or with some of the areas within the pyramids, you know, they kind of made that stuff up right there, or they were basing it off of, uh, you know, kind of theories from actual scholars, uh, but they're very keen to tell you when that's actually happening. So uh, you get a good sense, you know, where they made their decisions, you know, where they kind of decided to uh, butter their bread when it came to the history. But even though there's a lot of detail or there's quite a bit of detail in these tours, it, the tours also seem to be missing a lot of elements. Uh, so for instance, you know, the tours aren't really much more than the kind of short descriptive blurbs that you get at a modern museum. Uh, and another thing that's kind of weird about that is that, you know, in a museum you go through in kind of a set order, you know, you go through one area then you go to a next you know, area and you're kind of supposed to go through it in order. But in Discovery Tour mode, you can go in any order that you want to, which is, is fine. You know, it kind of fits in with the kind of ethos of video games. But it also means that you don't usually get kind of the broad overview of a subject before mm -hmm. you get into the nitty gritty uh, of that topic. Um, another thing that's really weird about this is that the game doesn't often use... Uh, or Discovery Tour mode doesn't often use the actual game animations in order to uh, kind of illustrate what's going on in the tours. So for instance, uh, you know, you could have a moment where you're inside a pyramid and it's talking about how the pyramid was constructed from the inside out. It would have been nice to actually have some NPCs from the game actually playing out that building process. Uh, but instead it just has kind of an archival sketch to go along with it, a static image, which is fine if you're thinking of it in terms of a museum. But if you're thinking of it in terms of a video game, it's it's a bit odd. So those are kind of the two main criticisms I've got about Discovery Tour mode. And I kind of wonder, you know, given the fact that it's so short and given the fact that it doesn't really seem to utilize the game that much, whether I would recommend this right. over Sage. And that's kind of an interesting question, isn't it? Because that's one of the issues we have when we think about video games and education and like what they're trying to do. You know, what what, what I found, and you've obviously you've taught a similar class, Bob. I mean, I don't know. I, I wonder how you do feel. Like when I've taught the History of Video Games class where they make a video game, ultimately it's the creation of the content and thinking about audiences and thinking about how to kind of translate quote unquote typical research into, 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 a, into a product or a, an entertainment item. 
that ends up making that class valuable, which which I went into hoping for, but it was really only when I did it, it was like, oh, this is actually kind of, this is what makes the class work, is the production of the content. And so I've kind of ended up sidestepping, although we, we talk about it in class a lot, that project doesn't necessarily address the issue of like, well, what are you trying to do? So like you say, um, at what point would um, a different kind of discovery tour mode actually, at what point would it supplant a textbook? or become equal to a textbook or become complementary to one that kind of becomes an interesting question, you know? Yeah. And I think at this point it is complementary, but I feel like, you know, given the amount of time and effort that went into this and certainly the amount of money, it, it kind of seems like they are angling towards right. creating a piece of edutainment, right? Creating one of these kind of, um, uh, education focused historical games. And in that sense, I, I think it's, kind of more and less than those typical types of products, right? It's more in the sense that it's got a much more uh, rich palette of images and illustrations and money behind it. Uh, but at the same time, it's less than that, given the fact that it doesn't seem to be making the most of those types of, uh, of those resources. So uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of an awkward product, I would say it's a really good start. Uh, you know, I think it's something that it shows the kind of dedication that Ubisoft has to this idea. And it certainly shows that, uh, you know, it was kind of a labor of love for the developers. Um, and, you know, I hope I hope for their sake it was a worthwhile inclusion. Um, I hope that it, it made them enough money or to hope that it uh, made enough sense for them uh, to have produced it. I want to go back for a second to the museum point, Bob, because that's a really interesting one to me. Just the way you were talking about kind of the setup and, you know, this idea of entering, you know, a brick and mortar museum alongside, you know, there's a, or sorry, you're following a certain idea, right? And like, especially Smithsonian institutions are a very good example of this, right? Where there's very clearly a pathway they want you to go through. There's a way they want you to enjoy certainly each exhibit, you know, and then other museums have... This is what we're going to do floor to floor. But I was reading an interesting piece by Keith Stewart um, a couple of weeks ago. Keith Stewart is a novelist who used to write on video games for The Guardian and still writes some video games here and there. And he was talking about his son playing Fortnite, and he fully understood how his son got into it and realized that he was doing the same thing, where they were just kind of hanging out in Fortnite. Mm -hmm. um, and his whole article was about hanging out in the virtual space versus hanging out in like real life. And, and his point course he'd be like you and me he'd be very sympathetic to video games as a perfectly natural outcropping of this he was like i'd hang out with my friends in the street corner he's hanging out with his friends in the various set piece areas of Fortnite. Mm -hmm. and and so you had said that you know you said online culture there's something very online culture around just exploring everything at your own pace but i remember being a teenager and treating museums like that as well and especially if you grow up in a large city or a medium-sized city and especially if you're lucky enough to live in a place like Britain, where museums have been free for a while now, where you can just like wander in. Um, it's interesting because they're different kinds of experiences. Like 17-year-old John would just kind of wander around maybe with like a date kind of or a bunch of people, whereas 37-year-old John, especially 37-year-old has history PhD John, I want to know what they want me to do, you know? I'm like, yeah. I want to have the experience this, is, this has been designed for. Yeah. And so I guess ideally... 
Discovery Tour would do both because Ubisoft is pretty ambitious, like mm-hmm. you were just saying. Um, so I just think that's that's just interesting to me, this idea, because even you say about it's kind of a missed trick, and I would agree that you're not getting animations from the game because that would be a really cool way to revive the um, – What's the word for that? That they have in museums, so like kids do them in grade school. You know, historical historical reenactors. Historical reenactors, you know, and uh, um, that that could be a kind of a cool reinvention of that idea. Well, and it just uh, seems so know? obvious. It seems so yeah. obvious to me because you've got the game, you've got the engine running, right? You are in the right. engine. You've got the NPCs there. Right. Why not make use of them? And there, I would say there is one instance that I found in the Discovery Tour where there is kind of this moment where NPCs are acting out what you're listening to, and that's when they're talking about mummification uh, uh-huh. in ancient Egypt. Uh, but that's the one instance, and it seems like it could work in any instance um, right. in the game. And you know, going back to your point about the museums, um, you know, maybe it's just the way that I treat museums. I I go to a museum and I read it like a book. Right. right? So right. I like I follow the path. Uh, I don't stray from the path. I am very critical of all the museum blurbs. You know, I'm <laughs> right. reading. I'm reading arguments, not just in the writing of the museum, but then also in the presentation of artifacts mm-hmm. and displays. Uh, but then that's just me. I'm a crazy historian, and uh, <laughs> you know, I think I would have. I, I go to museums, and my wife she won't go with me anymore because I spend three <laughs> hours there because I'm literally reading the museum. I'm reading everything. But the museum mm-hmm. has offered. It's like sitting down and reading a book uh, for most people. So maybe that's yeah. just me. Maybe I'm crazy. But uh, you know, just to cap it off, I just I really hope that Ubisoft found it worthwhile. You know, I mean, obviously, edutainment games are very big business. Not as big business as AAA games, but they are big business. So I could see where maybe they could find their way into that space. And if that's successful, then maybe we see more of this. Um, but I do. I do wonder, though, how many players are actually engaging with this. Um, I played Discovery Tour mode on uh, PlayStation. And what's great about PlayStation is that the trophy system actually gives you a window into how many people are actually playing a certain mode or playing a game. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, for instance, I collected a few trophies for Discovery Tour mode on PlayStation. And I went back and looked at the percentages of those trophies. This is the percentage of players that have uh, also gained that trophy who have actually started Discovery Tour mode. And for the really easily collectible trophies in Discovery Tour mode, I found that for most of them, only 8% of players had collected those. And and one of those is just to finish one of the tours, which might Mm -hmm. last five minutes. Only 8% of players Mm -hmm. had done that. Now, that's only PlayStation, right? That's not PC, that's Xbox. But still, that's kind of, you know... Uh, that's kind of a you know a poor sign uh, mm. as to the success of this mode. It raises a great question though: that what would success be, right? I mean, I I'm not sure what the sales of origins origins are, uh, but um, the Assassin's Creed series is also huge. Of course, this came out later. I mean, there are people, one of whom might be on this podcast, who spend a lot of money on a game, play a lot of that game, and then just don't touch it for a very long time, if ever again. Um, so it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I, I would fully agree 8% is not exactly going to knock anybody's socks off. And it's only that very first thing, like you say. So all that tells us is that 8% tried it. It doesn't mean they're going on to use it. Yeah. Um, but it is a big question for us, I think, in the edutainment, edutainment sphere of like, well, what are we kind of, what would success look like? Yeah. You know, it's a tough one. And then, and back to the museums real quick as well. It, it's an also, you're making a great point about, 
like I said, I remember being 19 and going to the National Palace Museum in Taipei where they keep all these amazing artifacts of Chinese history. And he's back in my father's office in two hours, like including the commute, you know. And he was just like, what are you doing back here? And I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and I, and I, I just kind of went in and I, I hung around and I looked at some vases and I thought, this is all really cool. And I went back. Whereas now, um, I cry thinking about that. It's like, oh, my God, what a waste of. That was terrible. How did I do that to myself? <laughs> um, but I, I, I think I think people who like history but aren't our kind of history appreciator, I think um, I do think they're skeptical. I do think they have opinions about the way stuff's presented, but they're not. They're probably not built thinking into the methodology as much as you and I are. Yeah. Um, because why would you? You know, <laughs> it's like why would you spend your leisure time doing that? Um, but you know, this is because it's awesome, awesome John. That's. <laughs> But no, but it's I, I don't know. I, I'm interested. And the other thing I'll say is eight percent. Again, I don't know what sales Origins had, but Assassin's Creed has a big fan base. And and I love that they've stuck to this. I love that they still employ Maxime Durand. I love that they're committed to it. And um, hopefully we'll look back in a few years and go, that was actually ended up being a cool first step. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, what have you been playing? Recently, any historical games in your historical games? I have been playing a little bit of Yakuza Zero, which is set in the 1980s. Um, which the history, my <laughs> I was full of vinegar in January, in June, and had all these ideas for summer recordings, but all the list of stuff is still there. So Yakuza Zero is coming up soon. <laughs> um, and Yakuza Zero is great. You know, you can go in and do KTV and do 80s Japanese uh, big hair rock. Um, with like button mashing, it's just this ridiculous thing. You're passing these nightclubs with great 80s tunes that, of course, unfortunately, PlayStation 4 has zero interest in letting you record, which mm-hmm. is predictable. Um, but really participates also in a long standing Japanese pop culture tradition of uh, gangster movies and gangster fiction. So that's, I think, I'm going to approach it for the video. Otherwise, um, I've actually been playing a lot of games, which is, which is great. The other kind of really historical one is graveyard keeper have you heard yeah i have yeah graveyard keeper is buckets of fun i really like it um it is actually very similar to um stardew valley which was an exceptional game um or stardew valley was was farming um graveyard keeper is like you know if stardew valley just wasn't nerdy enough for you and didn't have enough grind for you then graveyard keeper is for you it is very demanding um, but I didn't even, I don't even notice that I'm just churning all these hours away in Graveyard Keeper that could be a Yakuza Zero instead. Um, I'm just building tech and stuff. But historically, it's kind of got a goofy story that you've been teleported to this alternate universe. You've got to find your way back. But the alternate universe is pretty loosely modeled on a kind of a medieval Europe church dominated society. So as well as the Graveyard Keeper, so you're keeping the graveyard. You're also responsible for the church. You can become an abbey. You can go on to become, I think, maybe a monsignor, maybe more than that. You have what seems like an ally at first, who's the bishop, who turns out is just completely prepossessed with himself and his own riches, and he wants you to bribe him and stuff. There's a cardinal in the town who wants you to find women to help him sacrifice and burn his witches. Uh, you know, not super nuanced critiques of medieval Catholicism. So but, usual uh, Catholic stuff, then. Right? Yeah, exactly. Just standard, you know. We still do all that, so... Uh, <laughs> but it's actually, I, but I kind of like it because, you know, it's not, um, in no way is Graveyard Keeper trying to present itself as a serious kind of thing. It's just, it's swimming around in those kinds of tropes. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Um, I think it works. It's, it's a fun game. Um, it's, it's definitely a, it's a specific kind of game. So 
like I said, if you liked Stardew Valley and what you liked about it was building up skill trees and crafting and grinding a lot, Graveyard Keeper is for you. I, I was making it sound desperately unattractive, but I really like it. <laughs> and, and I just, I just this, the, the weird medieval dark Catholic motif is, is great. It's just, I love it. It's just that little historical sprinkle on the Sunday of weirdness that is Graveyard Keeper. So I yeah. recommend that game. I've looked through some trailers and it, you know, it kind of, it kind of made me think of like, you know, what if you played Diablo as like one of the, the townspeople of Trista right. rather than yes. like the hero? And that's, a great that, that's kind of what it made me, reminded me of. That's actually, that's, that's a great analogy. It's like, it's like a very, it's a cartoony version of a pretty, you know, a pretty funny take on Christianity. I don't, I don't know, I don't know if it's an age thing or an era thing. Like there was a period where Diablo was super dark and hardcore and cool. And like I know that Diablo three got a lot of criticism for not being dark enough in terms of its palette and its style and stuff. But part of me thinks the Blizzard artists were like, you know, I think uh, I think we push that as far as we're gonna go. I think we need to step back from the edginess. Um, we're not as edgy as we were in the 1990s, you know. Yeah. So Graveyard Keeper is a good uh, is a good way. So I, I I recommend it and just to I might I might do it for you to respawn just to kind of even just have a bit of a laugh and talk about the church stuff because it's super. It's if if nothing else, it's a tongue in cheek representation of, you know, certainly what like Calvinists thought about the Catholic Church. Right. You know, it's, it's pretty good. Right. Well, yeah, you've got to, you've got to defend Catholicism. I mean, you know, if you don't do it, who else will? Well, that's right. That's right. I'm the only one left. Jeez, I think after this summer, I might be the only one left. <laughs> oh no. I know. Yeah. How about you, Bob? What have how have you been? What games you've been playing? Uh, well, uh, you know. I've been uh, playing a bit of Discovery Tour mode, uh, and then I've also gone back and I played a few games that I bought in the spring that I just never really got a chance to uh, this summer. And those included uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, uh, and then also I replayed The Last of Us, uh, which was remastered for oh. PlayStation 4. How was the remastered version? It was excellent. Uh, you know, it really kind of freshens up the look of that game, uh, which came out originally in 2013 and the remaster mode came out in 2014. Uh, and it's, I mean, the game itself is as good as I remember. It really makes me, you know, excited for the next, uh, Last of Us. Um, and love that narrative. Um, and then Zelda, uh, which was, I mean, you know, I don't want to be too controversial here, but, you know, it came out last year and it was kind of treated like the second coming. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was good, but maybe not as revolutionary as I, I think other people were making it out to be. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, it's got really, you know, of course, uh, it's this uh, this team, the Nintendo, you know, creating Zelda, you know, just A-plus, uh, you know, craftsmanship when it comes to mechanics uh, when it comes to the feel of the game. But at the same time, you know, it, it lacks a real narrative element that's interesting. And, mm. you know, I think that people are right in saying that Nintendo really outdid themselves in creating an, an interesting open world. But for me, without a narrative hook, those open worlds are just not as fulfilling. They're not as interesting. Right. Um, you know, it's the game that's got great mechanics, great boss fights, great puzzles. There's a lot of puzzles in it. Um, but... As far as something that's going to make me want to come back there and kind of remember characters or remember settings, right? It really requires a better narrative to do that. And I just, I think it falls flat in that regard. Huh. Well, that's a pity to hear that. Although I guess it's a relief I, 
I, in theory, shouldn't buy a Switch anymore then, or I can put it off for a while. So is it just a, like a, is it a collection of kind of connected dungeons kind of thing, or? Well, there, there are technically only four, or maybe uh-huh. there's five. There's only five real dungeons in the game. Uh, but there are these set of, I'd say, like a hundred or so shrines. And each one of those shrines usually presents you with a puzzle. And it's funny, I, you know, I was telling my wife this, but I kind of felt like I was playing The Witness, which is a game that mm-hmm. is all about going to different puzzles. And mm-hmm. Zelda, in many ways, if you just play the shrines, is kind of like The Witness, where you are trying to you know, play different puzzles, do different puzzles. And they're not nearly as hard as The Witness, but right. it's kind of the same idea. And you know, the puzzles are you know, based on mechanics, they're based on combat, they're based on a combination of the two. Uh, and it's they're fun. They're great. I mean, they are well made. But mm-hmm. as far as this being kind of an epic open world story, you know, the narrative is just not there. And the voice acting that exists in that game is just awful. <laughs> uh, and I just I don't know. It's, it's a good game, but it didn't yeah. didn't change my world. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think for Nintendo, the fact there is voice acting is in of itself amazing, right? Or at least for Nintendo fans of a certain age. Sure. And I, it's funny because I think, except for Link to the Past, I've never quite clicked with Zelda as much as I've wanted to. Mm-hmm. I've started so many Zelda games and finished very, very few. And it's like a, it's like a shameful secret. I don't tell people, you know. Whereas Mario never had that problem. Finish Mario games, replay them again and again and again. And all that Nintendo magic is there and all those great games. But it's never happened for me mm-hmm. with Zelda for whatever reason. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's talk about some of the history game related news that's come out uh, recently, and we've got a bunch of it here. I, in fact, I added a few things uh, after we we canceled the last recording. So the first thing I've got here is the Red Dead Redemption gameplay trailer. Uh, mm-hmm. So the second Red Dead game is coming out uh, later this fall, uh, and this new trailer kind of confirmed a few things. Uh, it confirmed the setting of the game, which is 1899. Uh, which is not too distant from the setting of the first game, which was set kind of in 1910, 1911. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also it looks like there's going to be a lot of side activities, uh, including poker, uh, horseback riding, uh, hunting, and you know, all of these things that were in the first Red Dead game. And then also there's going to be a lot of supporting characters. You uh, kind of are part of uh, Dutch's gang, uh, which was mm-hmm. referenced throughout the first Red Dead and now... Uh, in this uh, prequel game, Red Dead Redemption 2, you are going to be interacting with those characters, and it looks like those are going to be, you know, kind of your uh, primary compatriots, but then also mission givers, you know, in kind of a classic open world mm-hmm. sense. So, uh, did you get a chance to see this trailer? What did you? If so, what did you make of it? Um, I'm so excited about this game. There's there's a real chance it'll make me just physically ill. I'm just. <laughs> That's I'm having difficulty enunciating just my happiness. <laughs> Even hearing you talk about playing poker in Red Dead Redemption and just thinking, oh, my God, um, I'm sorry I don't have anything more intelligent to say than I just. But I think that, like, my reaction is kind of an interesting. This is like a critique proof game right now. In a way, I think when it comes out, it won't be critique proof. I think lots of people will critique it, you know, um, but um it, it's hard to get past. I just can't wait to get my hands on it. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely intrigued by uh, the day. Uh, well, 
what I consider a day change because I hadn't really been keep, keeping up to speed with how the game was going to be set and stuff. So I hadn't actually kind of realized that we're officially going back in the, into the 19th century. So I have no idea. Yeah. I have no idea if they'll try for any thematic cusp of 20th century stuff. I mean, they were doing that already in the first game and certainly an historian of the West with a capital W could probably quickly point out that you could do lots and lots of cusp of new era stuff. 1899 isn't necessarily the time to do it just because it's yeah. a 20th century thing. Yeah. But, but, but you never know. That might be how they're doing it. So, um, I, I, I'm excited. I suppose what I would say is the, watching the trailer and everything, it's like, yeah, this is going to give you the stuff that I know I'll enjoy doing. Um, and I'm going to keep around, sitting around to wait and see, is there a larger, um, story here? You know, the Rockstar guys are interesting because Grand Theft Auto 5 has been on huge sales recently and they keep not buying it. And because I had bought it, I bought it when it first came out and, there's just this mission that's kind of based on Lindsay Lohan type character, and it just kind of turned me off. And there'd been sometimes that game had been turning me off, you know, mm-hmm. um, tonally. Yeah. Um, and Red Dead Redemption feels different to me, and I don't know why. I don't know if that's right or not. Um, but I. So for me, I'm kind of. How do I put this? This is a ridiculous thing to say, and people listening will think this is a silly thing to say, but. I'm kind of waiting for them to redeem themselves with Red Dead Redemption 2, mm. you know, after the enormous success that has been GTA 5. Yeah. But like from a storytelling perspective, I, for me personally, I, I, I'm looking forward to this as, as a return to something. But we'll have to see. We'll have to see what they do. You know, I, I, I understand what you're saying, you know, because I think a lot of people believe that, you know, Red Dead is kind of the saving grace for a lot of rock stars' work. Yeah. Um, although I would say that, there is kind of this habit of mind, and I've noticed it in particular with game critics, to kind of ignore some of the more controversial and outright disgusting parts of Red Dead Redemption. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking in particular of the uh, portrayal of Native Americans in that game, and then also uh, the yeah. portrayal of Mexicans and Mexican revolutionaries uh, mm-hmm. in that game, which is really abominable. And yeah, I think it's odd. I think that in a way, because it's a historical time period, and because the people's memories of that time period is a little fuzzy, mm-hmm. uh, there's kind of a little bit more forgiveness of that kind of those kind of mistakes in the way that you know like you were saying with the Lindsay Lohan mission with the torture missions uh in GTA 5 that they don't give them the same amount of slack um I don't know maybe I'm being unfair there but I, it is my kind of feeling that there is a problem with the way in which we perceive Red Dead and that in fact I think it has a lot more in common with the GTA series than mm-hmm. most people will give it yeah, I think that's a great point. I think that um, I think that I'm certainly guilty of kind of falling into this trope playing the game. It's not that the game's representing the West exactly. It's just that you are now play you are now in a Western, you know. And in my own personal vocabulary, although there have been many Westerns in the last twenty years that don't do this, but in my kind of personal vocabulary, watching Westerns as a child, that's just how those groups are represented in Westerns, you know. Sure. Which sure. by no means makes it okay. Like let's be clear about that. But and it, but and it's something that I'll be honest, I've never really kind of. It's something I hadn't ever really thought of until it was covered by History Respond, and it's, it just isn't in the forefront of my head until you know you just brought it up. Um, and it's a great point because it raises a great question. I I don't want to. I'm not going to spoil anything of the second season of the HBO show Westworld, for example. <laughs> but if people people who watch that show will know what I'm talking about, and if you don't, maybe you'll watch it some point and you'll know. But that show ends up doing something really interesting in this representation of Native Americans, 
where early on you're sitting there going, oh, God, this is okay. I guess that's just what they're doing. And they're using sci-fi as their fig leaf. They're mm-hmm. using genre as their fig leaf. And it turns out Westworld wasn't really doing that. Mm. Um, and so and so there's so it can be done. And so it'd be curious because, you know, it's, it's a lot more complicated, of course, as, as you know, Bob, and as our listeners know, it's a lot more complicated than like letting you control a Native American character for half an hour or whatever. Sure, case, like, sure. like, that's not going to cut it either, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just think that it is, it's really interesting to me that otherwise really kind of, um, I don't know, present and progressive game journalists seem to give Red Dead a, a pass. Yeah. And in fact, I think in many ways it's worse, uh, than GTA as a series. Right. Um, right. But we'll see. You know, we'll, you know, we'll let the game have its day. And obviously it'll have many days of mm-hmm. both of ours going into the future. But, uh, Let's move on to talking about uh, Battlefield uh, and mm-hmm. the new uh, Battlefield, uh, which is coming out uh, later this fall. Uh, it was pushed back uh, to November. Originally, it was supposed to be released in October. But uh, Battlefield Five, which is going back to the Second World War in much the same way that Call of Duty uh, mm-hmm. went back uh, last year. And so this new Battlefield Five beta was uh, available for free on uh, PS4, PC, and Xbox recently. Uh, and I got to play uh, quite a bit of it, and you know, kind of comparing this game to Battlefield One, I I think it goes for some of the more kitschier elements of the Second World War. So, for instance, uh. you know, a lot of the uh, player characters, at least in multiplayer, they are not so much kind of representing World War Two, you know, uh, soldiers in kind of the way that Battlefield One, you know, how was had pretty you know, accurate representations of World War One soldiers. The World War Two soldiers in Battlefield Five, they kind of seem to be people cosplaying as mm. uh, World War Two soldiers. So, for instance, you'll have, you know, a regular uh, infantryman who's got a gas mask and a funky helmet, and that's not like a, uh, you know, a, uh, an addition from the player. It's not like a perk that you buy. It's actually like this is what the base character. <laughs> uh, looks like you know he looks like he's a double in a um, you know a, a 1980s uh, David Bowie music video or something like that. <laughs> right, um, right. And I'd say another interesting element of Battlefield Five. I got to play a few of the maps. Uh, is that it's much more class based uh, than Battlefield One. So, uh, for instance, there is kind of much more of an emphasis on uh, you know having medics, having support troops. Uh, having uh, assault troops, uh, and that's a that's a bit of a change uh, from Battlefield One, which was kind of, to a certain extent, I mean there were classes, but to a certain extent you could kind of make your own uh, character, and that seems to be less the case uh, with Battlefield Five. Yeah, I I I just have to accept the reality that I'm not good at Battlefield games. I think. <laughs> um, but I noticed that Battlefield 1, Battlefield 1 kind of has these roles you pick kind of thing, but it's all very, like at first I thought it was an Overwatch style deal where you can just mix and match as you go, but yeah, the boundaries between the classes seem pretty loose. Um, and I, I, I don't, and I'm not a Battlefield fan, so I'm not really sure how the Battlefield community received that, do you know what I mean? So I don't know how much of this is a response to what they want gameplay wise. Yeah. Um, I, I love the tone of Battlefield 1. I mean, yes, it was very video gamey and everything else, but, um, I loved the I loved the depictions. I loved the the characters and the scripted stuff. I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I think the operation missions in the Battlefield multiplayer were also particularly good. I finally had a chance to go back and play some of those a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know, it's it's good. You know, it's uh, it's fun to have kind of in-depth explanations for some of the uh, multiplayer settings, the maps in which you're playing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a series of maps that go along with an actual First World War campaign. It's much more kind of historical material it's much more information than what you'd get out of you know the majority of multiplayer games especially with historical setting um and we'll have to wait to see what battlefield 5 offers you know i'd imagine it'd be pretty similar uh to battlefield 1 but it does kind of feel like with battlefield 5 they are tapping back into battlefield 1942 right where it's kind of going right. back to its roots kind of being a little bit more devil may care uh, with representations of historical time periods, uh, you know, not that they were all so, uh, uh, you know, sacrosanct with uh, Battlefield One, but you know, it seems like it kind of harkens a bit back. You know, in playing Battlefield Five, it reminded me quite a bit of the feel of uh, 1942. So uh, we'll have to wait to see what that's like. Yeah, you know, as, as we get older, and I was thinking of this during the Zelda conversation as well. Like when I teach my uh, teach my video game class, I call it history and video games, and I make a real point of saying to colleagues, it's not the history of video games, and I'm very clear on that and everything else. Um, but you know, the older we're getting and the older this medium is getting, there's so much. There, it's 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 meta beyond belief, right? The yeah. history of video games, where sure it's a historical game, it's got an historical setting, but as you just said, but the real context is Battlefield 1940, or, or part of the context is Battlefield 1942. Yes. Yeah. Zelda, even the reception of Zelda. Um, you know, it didn't do it for you, and 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 party has to wonder how much of the positive reception is down to like people have a whole system in place in their brains yes. for how they're receiving Zelda. Not yes. to say that it's not good. I mean, you know, the, I'm not trying to say the world is wrong and you know you're right or whatever. But but that's just interesting. Like when Mario games, like Nintendo for years now structures Mario releases playing with that expectation, and that is officially now that's a cultural norm that's been established. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's history right there. That's that's yeah. good old fashioned linguistic turn history. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's it's like you were saying with westerns. You know, there's kind of this set expectation. You know, it's like oh, you've seen so many westerns. This is just how they treat certain topics in westerns. Right. Same could be said of video games, right? Oh, this mm-hmm. is a Zelda game, so this uh, this and this is going to happen, and this is going to be treated in this way. Mario is the same way. Battlefield is the same way, and you know, like you said. Um, I have the same problem with uh, my colleagues when I'm saying, oh, my class on historical video games is history and video games, not history of video games. But at the same time, given the fact that it is a genre that is now kind of moving from childhood into adolescence, you know, you kind of also have to be aware of that longer history of video games itself in order to talk about historical video games. And it it gets very complicated. Yeah, and, and you have, um, and of course, students come in with their own ideas of what they want to talk about and their own concepts of the history of it as well. And I mean, unless VR does make the leap, and of course, technology will make a fool of me for saying this, but I am getting old now, I guess. But it's it's hard to see the leap in visual fidelity from now to 15 years from now that we had from 15 years ago to now, as it were. And and part of me, you know, we had this conversation back when um, uh, Call of Duty World War II came out. And how much of that game's vibe was influenced by Saving Private Ryan and Steven Spielberg. And so increasingly, I'm thinking, especially now as the tech has kind of settled, I mean, it's always going to be moving forward, obviously, but it's settled. Will we eventually start to kind of get a sense of um, 
um, uh, of cultural trends and shifts within the medium in terms of storytelling and presentation, you know, when I think of a, a battlefield game, particularly, I'm thinking of being in the cockpit of our, you know, or the gunner seat of a vehicle. And kind of, and, and all the kind of immediacy of that view and, and the way they use that, they so skillfully use it to create adrenaline jumps for the player, right? Yeah. Um, but that becomes a stylistic norm because you see that in the history of film, you know? Yeah. Like, so when do we get to our 70s director stuff where we have 10 years of just like amazing, crazy video games that nobody will believe they made 10 years after that? Like, you yeah. know, like the kind of the new directors type thing. Yeah. Um, and we'll see. We'll see when that happens. Yeah, well, that sounds kind of scary to me, actually. You imagine like six Hideo Kojimas at the same time. That would that that's that's what makes me think of yeah when you said 1970s directors. I was like, yeah, that's oh, true. That's a good point. That would be that would be terrible. <laughs> but then it's the I guess it's the indie game. You know, it's such a cheesy thing to say, but the indie game revolution informs that too. You know, so we have you know have to see what happens. Uh, and last bit of news here is that uh, Civilization VI is coming to Nintendo Switch, which is great. I mean, I think having Civ VI on different consoles is fantastic, but is also maybe the worst news I've ever heard related to video games. I <laughs> I own a Nintendo Switch. I fully intend to buy Civ VI for it. And the thought that I could take this game that you know, just kind of gobbles up all of my time when I'm sitting in front of a computer. The fact that I could take that with me, basically in my pocket anywhere, that that sounds really dangerous. I really worry for my marriage. <laughs> I, I worry for the health of my kids. I, I don't know how to handle this news. John, how are you doing? Um, well, I don't have a Switch. And yeah. so um, you saying all this makes me feel better. Makes me feel more secure in my marriage, in my life. I, I just, I just, you know, they'll port everything to that thing, and 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 I, I'm, I'm thrilled for Nintendo. It's working. I'm thrilled for people who own Switches. I'm, I always thought it looked cool from the second they revealed it, and I think a lot of people felt this way. That looks cool. I hope it works, yeah. and it has worked. And what I didn't expect, because this has always been Nintendo's problem, is porting stuff over, right? Yeah. But it's working. I mean, um, <laughs> Paradox Games is porting Stellaris. Yeah. To yeah. consoles now. Yeah. Now, for those of you who don't know, Stellaris, like, go on YouTube a video of Stellaris. This is not a game I expect to work particularly well on PS4. But they're doing it, and, and who knows? They might, they might, maybe they'll do a, you know, what would be cool would be a Crusader Kings game designed for Switch. That would be cool. I don't know if they have the resources for that, but, mm. um, I don't know. It's just funny. It's just, and at this, it's, it's easy, I think, to get, we were just talking kind of the history of games, history of the genre and stuff, history of the medium. And I think you can get frustrated sometimes with some of the big budget stuff, but if you take a step back, especially from the microtransaction stuff, which I understand is frustrating, I find it frustrating too. These guys will try anything right yeah. now. They're just yeah. going to try anything, and that's that's exciting. Um, but I but I hope that uh, I hope that we speak again. I hope that your life holds together. You'll 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 show up on my doorstep three years from now, clutching a switch, <laughs> begging for an electrical current. <laughs> I haven't eaten in days. Do you have an outlet I can charge this uh, thing up? I need a charge, bro. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, uh, won't come to that. Hopefully not. Um, yeah, you know, it is a it is a spectacularly well made console, um, and it is something that even if uh, you know, like you said, uh, there's uh, multi platform games out there. So many of them now. Um, even if it is available more cheaply on uh, a different console or a PC, I am more inclined to get it for the Nintendo Switch just because I enjoy playing it 
wow. on there more, right? The feel of the console, uh, the mechanics of the console and the controls are just really lovely. I mean, it's a really fantastically engineered piece of technology. Um, and uh, I'm talking about it now like uh, as though I'm going to marry it or something like that. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a really – it's an amazing piece of technology, and I, I'm really fascinated to see how Civ Six works on it. You know, I've played uh, Civilization. My first experience with Civilization was actually on the Super Nintendo, right? So oh, I'm, wow. I'm no stranger to console editions of Sid Meier games, and – uh, but given that, I mean, you know, Civ Six it is a it is a massive game. It is a beast, and uh, I'm very curious to see how it ports uh, to the Switch. Yeah, well, I I'd be excited, and and if that works, then that opens the door to a to a lot of things. Yeah, a lot of things. So, well, let's let's, and then also, you know, Assassin's Creed. We spend a lot of time in this in history spawned in podcasts and in videos. Talking about Assassin's Creed and Civilization, those two, those two um, series. Um, but at the end of the day, they're huge hits, and they are trailblazers for the kind of stuff that you and I are interested in. Yeah. So, and it's, I mean, we, we're not going to root for them per se. It's not really our position, but we we could certainly wish them well, you know. And and sure. I and I hope it I hope it succeeds. And the more game, the more the more Civ copies it gets out, the more that grows. You have the the there you know for axis have there's some focus there in education on their side as well so yeah. let's see where that goes yeah absolutely uh well i think that's going to do it for this episode of history respawn john thank you so much for joining me finally i know thank you bob you know the technology gods did their best to stop us we just wouldn't let them we <laughs> recorded it anyway <laughs> uh, for those of you interested, uh, the History Respawn website is back, uh, historyrespawn.com. I recently ported it over uh, from a WordPress website to Squarespace. Uh, got a little extra money, so I decided to put that towards uh, the website. Uh, I think it looks pretty good now. Uh, John is giving me his notes, so I'll keep working on it uh, the weeks to come. But uh, I think you, know, you can look for History Respawn content there in the future, and also, go back and look at our back catalog, which I've just got finished porting over all of our videos and most of our podcasts. And it's, you know, it's funny that layout, it, it's, I think it's a, we're, you know, working out the kinks, but I love the theme and I love the layout of it. And I was scrolling down going, this is great. There's a lot of good stuff here. <laughs> We've got to keep this up. We've got to keep it going. Yeah. All right. Uh, and to you, listener, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.